again, everyone, and welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor Mark Faulkner, joined by our Red Wings beat reporter, Ted Colfin. Coming up, we'll hear from former Michigan State Spartan Dwayne Norris and how his family has found hope and strength in his hometown in Oxford one month after the high school's shooting tragedy on November the 30th. But first, Ted, in your story today at DetroitNews.com, the Red Wings had scheduled a flight to New York last night at 5 p.m., and they were supposed to face the Islanders tonight at 7.30 in that new billion-dollar UBS arena. But the Islanders had more positive COVID tests. So now the Wings have four games to make up this year, a home game against Colorado and road games against the Islanders, Rangers, and Wild. So, Ted, what's the latest? The Wings have an optional skate right now. It's Wednesday morning. And they have games scheduled on Friday against the Capitals and Sunday's matinee against the Bruins. They haven't played since December the 18th. That's 11 days ago. When are we going to see the Wings again? Looks like Friday, right? Let's hope for Friday, Mark. I mean, it looks it's looking good. I mean, you're seeing more and more Wings coming off the COVID list every day. There's two today, mm-hmm. Joe Pano and Sam Gagne. Capitals have been hit hard too, but doesn't look like it's going to impact them knock on wood so yeah hopefully friday it's a couple guys and we've heard all week about how they're itching to get back at it getting getting back into a game rhythm and oh yeah i mean i think they have got to get their <laughs> season going from their perspective and an nhl perspective it's been such a long hiatus it seems like i know it's only been a week but with all the other postponements before that week there's a lot of games the NHL has to get through. So, yeah, hopefully we'll see some hockey here soon. Let's hear now from the player's perspective, beginning with goaltender Alex Nedeljkovic. He talked to the media yesterday, and here's what he told you about returning to practice this week. Hey, Alex, how weird has this been? I mean, like you said about, you know, just waiting for your next game like this. I mean, you guys should be like right in the throes of a real busy schedule right now after Christmas. I mean, does this feel just totally – different from what you're used to and all, obviously? Yeah, obviously it's very different, um, but it's the world we live in now. And, uh, you know, you just gotta, can't do much about it. Unfortunately, um, just show up to the rink practice when we have practice, you know, try to get better, try to try to maintain a a positive uh, mentality and a positive attitude and um, just look forward to when we get back on the ice playing games and, uh, you know, hopefully, like I said, we hit the ground running when we do. What were your symptoms? I mean, did you ever feel really bad or what? Just the stuff, you know, I didn't maybe a little tired that, that day after, but like I said, I, I played through worse um, in juniors and my last few years in pro, like, you know, you wake up, you feel achy or sore some days or whatever. You just kind of grind through it. So other than that, other than the one day where I had minor symptoms, I felt fine. Is that the thing that's kind of frustrating? It doesn't seem like a lot of you guys have been really, even around the league, have been really all that sick. I mean, is that the thing that's kind of, it's like, man, just to a certain extent, let us play or what? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's weird. I mean, especially with this, with this variant now, like we, you know, the guys aren't, guys aren't getting super sick. Um, if, if at all. And you wouldn't know it if you weren't testing. And I understand why we're testing, but, um, you know, like when you get the flu, you're not testing for the flu and yet guys are walking around the locker room, you know, 
runny nose, stuff nose, coughing here and there. And, you know, everybody just kind of looks the other way and you, you go about your day. Um, but because we're testing and everything like that, even we, even if we don't show any symptoms at all, you know, now we have to go home and, and kind of sit around for 10 days and it doesn't really make sense. Um, you know, hopefully the league kind of takes a, a closer look at it now with the CDC saying, you know, we only need five days of quarantine. Um, I think the NFL and the NBA have been proactive in that. So hopefully we can follow suit and, and uh, make the same changes. So there you have Alex Nadelkovich talking about trying to maintain a positive attitude. And he hopes that the NHL follows suit, Ted, with the other pro leagues to reduce the length of quarantining to five days instead of 10. But as we were saying before the podcast started with those seven Canadian-based teams, all the rules, all the bets are off because each province has their own rules and regulations and they can change in a heartbeat. So it really can be difficult, can it, to try and reschedule these 80 games with the threat, too, of all these Canadian-based teams not being able to play on a regular basis. And we're already seeing, I guess, there's going to be a lot of the Canadian teams are going to be switching home dates here in January and February. Mm -hmm. Come over to the States. So there won't be a loss of significant revenue. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an issue. I mean, and and the thing is, even with that three week block that they had for the Olympics, Mark, a lot of those arenas around the country have been booked already Mm -hmm. in, in anticipation that a lot of these, well, obviously there wouldn't be any hockey, but now things are have changed significantly. So actually the pool of available dates isn't as large as we all thought it was going to be. So mm-hmm. I want to be the schedule maker right now, Mark. It's <laughs> a lot of headaches right there. Let's hear now from uh, the captain, Dylan Larkin. Here's your conversation with Larkin on Monday, right after the team returned to the ice after the Christmas break. How are you feeling these days? And just... What's the mood around the team right now with all this uncertainty, I guess? Well, first, I guess, and foremost, it's good to be back. Uh, it's good to have uh, more and more guys show up every day, it seems, and um, that they're feeling well, most importantly. So, uh, you know what I think uh, the mood in the room is that we've kind of been through it and had a lot of uh, positive cases. So uh, hopefully we can uh, move on from it and, and uh you know, it, it uh, you know, isn't really a problem for us anymore. Can this strengthen a team somehow, just the adver- battling the adversity and stuff? Yes. You know, we, we had a great uh, win at home there before before the shutdown. And I think, uh, you know, the shutdown kind of, uh, I guess, took away the momentum. But we got to find that quickly uh, coming up uh, against the Islanders and, um, you know, hopefully we're playing. I, I don't know, that seems day to day, but um, you know, hopefully we find uh, our momentum because we got to focus on a on a big second half here and uh, quickly get our our mind off of uh, being away from the game and and Christmas and get back to uh, back to work. The last one. That is a good point. I mean, I was thinking about that. I mean, you guys did have some momentum, obviously going. You guys were playing decent hockey and all that, but and then all of a sudden it just stops. I mean. What do you do to regain that or whatever? Well, it's how we how we set ourselves up, how we prepare, and uh, how we play and and on the island. And we haven't played great uh, road hockey, and um, you know it's a team that uh, um, you know is looking and they're hungry for points. Especially, they're probably hoping to have a big second half. So we gotta we gotta have a great start to that game and and uh, you know uh, play play a great road hockey game.
Ted, you asked about that momentum the Wings had before the break. They're two games over 500. The winning percentage of the Wings, they'd be in right now on points. They'd make the second wild card right behind Pittsburgh in the Atlantic Division. Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Florida would get in. In the Metropolitan Division, Carolina, Washington, and the Rangers could get in. But if you take a look even at the Bruins coming in here on Sunday, Detroit has a three-point lead on Boston, but the Bruins have five games in hand. So it's kind of confusing too, isn't it? Not only for the players, the fans, trying to sort out how your team is doing and whether you can keep that momentum going. Oh, Mark, it's a mess. It really is. I mean, yeah, some teams have played, like you said, Boston's played five less games. There's teams, Calgary's been, Calgary's barely gotten half the the seasons, Mm -hmm. it seems like, before COVID struck them. So, yeah, I mean, all you can do is play your best hockey and keep on accumulating points. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but honestly, at this point, that's all you can do because, yeah, the, the disparity in the games played is really going to make it a hodgepodge here for a while, I think. After the break, we'll hear from GM Steve Eiserman and coach Jeff Blaschel. But first, here's our interview segment with former NHLer Dwayne Norris. Joining us now is former NHL player and one of Michigan State's all-time leading scorers, Dwayne Norris. Dwayne, welcome to the podcast. And let's begin today with a story that you can read online at DetroitNews.com. It's a six-part story. So, Dwayne, the first part of the story talks about your decision to move to Oxford back in 2007. You were raising your family after 11 years of playing pro hockey. So can you explain why you felt Oxford was a safe haven and whether you feel Oxford is still that safe haven? Yeah, sure, Mark. So uh, I was fortunate enough to come out of college and, you know, sign and play some pro hockey for a number of years and and made a Mm -hmm. shift to Europe um, for 11 and then managed a team in Europe for three. So in 2007, when I was done playing, um, you know, we're kind of looking at the next chapter of of your life where you know maybe hockey is coming to an end and we've been overseas for a long time and trying to figure out where are we going to be grounded where are our roots going to be um michigan is an area an area that uh i fell in love with um playing for michigan state met my mm-hmm. wife tracy there and um when we were playing overseas we spent uh, a lot of summers when we come back at the end of the year with the boys uh getting involved in other activities and and oxford was a a small community um you know, not a real high dense population, um, a little bit north of Lake Orion, but it's real quiet, a little more countryside-ish. And my wife's sister, Tricia, um, had bought a place in uh, Oxford a number of years before. And it seemed like a real mm-hmm. nice um, place to kind of get grounded and have the boys uh, involved in the community in the summertime and baseball and those types of things. So it was, you know, the beginning of the next chapter, so to speak, with my hockey career ending and um, that being an area where it was close to Canada because I'm Canadian and um, obviously a, a lot of water and whatnot around. And um, we really felt it would be a, a great opportunity to raise kids, um, you know, and hopefully give them an opportunity to, uh, you know, move on to the next chapter in their lives at, I think it was 13, 11 and nine when we came back. Mm-hmm. Is it still a safe haven for you? Is that too difficult of a question right now? What What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I still think it's a, you know, a, a safe place to to raise kids with a, a, a lot of uh, great people, a community that certainly, um, you know, is, is close to each other. And, and like anything, you know, when that particular incident happened in Oxford, once again, you never really think it would ever happen in your community. Um, this isn't a, a very big area, so to speak, and it's mm-hmm. it's not that we certainly don't 
feel safe? Uh, have things changed? Have our perspective changed? Um, are we more vulnerable? Um, I would say sure. You know, we certainly can't live our life in in fear. But you know, when things like that happen so close to home, uh, it's hard not to believe and think, okay, I need to revisit. You know, some of the things that I'm doing in life, and whether it's you know, uh, having a better perspective on what's going around and, and the stresses of life, of course, um, obviously these days are being very exposed by people's actions, unfortunately. And um, so I wouldn't say it's not a, a safe place, but mm -hmm, at the same mm -hmm. time, it's hard to believe that this is a community that it did happen in. Uh, but once again, you turn on the news, you you see a lot of trauma and tragedy in the world, and you just never really feel like it's going to hit, you know, uh, the grassroots that where you're in. And unfortunately on that particular day, uh, it did. And uh, it certainly brought some perspective to us, our, our community and our family. That's for sure. Dwayne, the middle part of the story focuses on your three boys, Cole, Josh, and Dalton. Cole is at uh, Bowling Green right now after four years at Ferris State. Josh is a center with the Ottawa Senators, and Dalton is going to Bowling Green next year. He's with the Lincoln Stars. He's a defenseman. Let's hear now, though, from Josh. The day after the Oxford shooting, he was meeting reporters before the game against the Vancouver Canucks, and he was visibly upset and shaken when asked about the shooting in Oxford. It was a tough day yesterday. I mean, um, you never really think that something like that is going to happen in your hometown. So I think I just, you know, want to, you know, send all my love and um, my thoughts and everything with, um, you know, my hometown. Um, obviously, super unfortunate, and it's, uh, yeah, like I said, it's hard. Um, just uh, what some of those kids went through and um, the parents of those kids. And um, it's, uh, it's really difficult. So I think, you know, all I can do is, uh, you know, send my thoughts and my love and um, yeah, just, uh, you know, I'm proud to be from there and it's such an unfortunate situation. And um, yeah, I just uh, have my thoughts with them. So, Dwayne, we just heard from Josh, and I just wonder how your three boys have responded to the, to the shooting in their hometown of Oxford, Cole, Josh, and Dalton. Uh, how are the boys? I mean, they're like anybody else, you know, especially when it first happened, we're, we're in shock. Um, we had to feel the, the compassion for others. You know, we, we obviously have friends um, in the community and those that were affected uh, directly by the shooting, not only those that were unfortunately fatally um, uh, killed but uh, you know those that were psychologically involved uh, you know and and went through the whole incident up there so it was tough I mean it was like wildfire um, we got a text from our oldest uh, you know that afternoon just kind of um, without making assumption of what was happening and his mother and I and two brothers were on there and instantly it was kind of like oh my gosh I can't believe this is happening so you know, there it was. It really hit them hard. Um, mm -hmm. You know, initially when it happened, obviously my wife and I, trying to console each other in our own way, we're obviously in shock. Um, Tate Muir, who's the the son of one of the uh, one of the boys, unfortunately, that was tragically killed. Um, uh, Buck and Sherry have been friends of ours for a lot of years. Um, Tate's oldest uh, brother Trent and Dalton played together in the same baseball team for I think it was like four years and. Dad Buck was one of the coaches. So we obviously 
had a rapport with them. So instantly it was, you know, we felt terrible for, for everyone involved. And of course, there's even more sensitivity to those that you're directly involved that you know. So we were trying to trying to figure out how this could happen, as I said, without making um, assumptions. And of course, there's a lot of information that came in quickly and um, it was all over the map and through social media. So we tried to do our best to maintain composure, but at the same time be there for each other. And it, it really was a, you know, a, a punch in the gut, I guess, if you could say like you've never mm-hmm. felt. And it just, for me, it lingered for days um, and still has. And I know for the boys in particular, because they have, you know, family or friends of families that have kids, younger siblings going there, even though my kids all went there and have moved on. Of course, you stay connected in a small city or small town like Oxford. So you you, you know everybody. Wayne, in the story, uh, you said the Myers are doing the best they can and that it's important to remember that everyone in the community has been impacted by the four deaths and seven injured in the deadliest U.S. mass school shooting since 2018. And in the story, you said, you know, how do you wake up tomorrow and pick up the pieces and still show strength and then still be vulnerable? Could you speak again to what it's like being friends of somebody who, again, the three boys, uh, the Mears and the Norrises growing up in this community, you're coming back from Germany after your NHL career, and that high-scoring career at Michigan State. I just wonder what your thoughts are, the, the two families um, consoling each other and, 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 and trying to be there for each other during these, uh, during these times. Yeah, I mean, for me, especially initially, when all the shock um, of the incident and, you know, how things went down so brutally. And, um, you know, I remember sitting there at Kensington Church that day and, um wondering like i can't imagine that being me or us mm-hmm. having three boys they had three boys obviously a little bit different in age but not that drastic it's it's you know how do you pick up the pieces as a as a dad and as a mom um you know as i said um the support that was there in that particular day was just absolutely incredible i mean not only people that were family and friends but just people in the community or outside the community or law enforcement and it was uh, it was really mesmerizing in its own way. It was beautiful in its own way, but um, it's just uh, when I think about the strength that Buck would have had to have um, the night before mm-hmm. um, that tape was buried to to address the two teams that he was so heavily involved with and and very impactful as an athlete, being the wrestling team and the baseball team. And I just thought it was really selfless for him to think about you know, um, how could he make an impact to take away from this terrible incident that's so raw and still shed some positivity and perspective? And what I mean by that is for him to ask those kids mm-hmm. of that age, uh, you know, characteristics of trait that you you really liked as a person. And, and if we could all take one of those characteristics and implement it in our lives to be just a little bit better person or people or better environment, um, then that would be something that's impactful in, in Tate's legacy. And, uh, I think the strength and the courage to do that was incredible. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when a dad is mourning, obviously a family that's mourning, but still find a way to uh, spin a little positivity. If there's ever, maybe that's not the appropriate word, but some perspective on, on how a tragedy like this can still be kind of turned into something, hopefully that can make us all better. So to me as a dad, um, and my wife and I were thought about this as, uh, 
was truly remarkable. You know, that's the Muir family. That's the people that we knew um, and know today. Um, they're obviously hurting, but at the same time, they were trying to uh, shed some perspective on the community and how it might be able to help mm-hmm. moving forward. Dwayne, at the end of the story, you said that you learned life is short when your father died of cancer at age 59, but you said we really don't plan for 15, 16, 70-year-old kids to be taken so suddenly with no warning and with so many unanswered questions. Your quote then was, we take our kids for granted that they'll be healthy and go to college or get a trade, be married and have kids and will enjoy their grandkids. To me, you said, it's clear we have to live in the now. It's a tough world and things unfortunately happen and not on the timeline that we hoped. These are lessons you said that you learned back when your father passed away. But I don't think, again, anybody expects the timeline to be the timeline to be changed like this. I'm just wondering what else you think about when you, when you think about the, the line, life is short, time is short. What are you, what are you thinking there, Dwayne? Yeah, and what I would say to that is, you know, my dad passed away, as you had mentioned, at 59. It was in the later part of my career, in early 30s. And, you know, um, we were fortunate and blessed that, um, you know, he had taken time in his life at a younger age, in his 50s, to to see my, bro- my me and my two siblings play sports and, mm-hmm. and took time to kind of, you know, smell the roses a little bit because uh, – I can't speak for others, but I think a lot of people think, hey, there's a lot of things I'm going to do or plan on doing when I retire. Um, But, you know, we're on borrowed time. We never know if we're ever going to get there. So I think when my dad passed away, it shed a little bit different perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then obviously something like this being so traumatic, it it just takes it to a whole nother level where you don't expect, you know, you're burying children at a young age when their life is just getting started. And um, you know, you get a chance to have those relationships with your kids when they're in their teens or later years as more of adult relationships or the beginning of adult relationships. It just seems so sad and unfortunate that, um, you know, that parents uh, like the mirrors and people in the community have to go through that. And it's just, I, I think life sometimes is just so busy. Mm-hmm. We get caught up in doing our own thing. Um, and we just think uh, the day-to-day uh, good fortunes that we have uh, will always be there and we'll grow old together. And, and it's, it's just not the way it is. And I know there are a lot of other people that live with tragedies a lot earlier in their life. And I, I think these are two that really have hit home for me um, personally with my dad's passing young and now something like this, um, you know, with the death of a child um, of a friend at a young, young age, it's just, you know, we need to make an impact uh, today uh, in our lives and leave a positive footprint uh, with people, whether we, how, what we say or how we react or how we act. I think, um, you know, because the end of the day for me, this is just my own belief, Mark, is, you know, it's not what you get in this world, it's what you leave in this world. And um, when you talk about the impact that somebody makes in your life and you go to a funeral of a 15-year-old boy and you see two or 3,000 people there, it certainly shows um, his ability to touch people in his young life and to obviously have positivity because it was amazing to hear the positive things of what teammates, family, and friends thought of Tate Muir in particular. And finally, Dwayne, uh, the story ends by talking about you talking to a lot of young hockey players the day after the shooting. For our listeners, uh, you're the coach of the Oakland Grizzlies under-16 team, which is ranked among the top 20 teams in the country. 
and you're the director of hockey operations for the TPH Center of Excellence in West Bloomfield. That's an academy style hockey environment for about 50 student athletes from seventh grade to 11th grade. And you said at the time in the story, you said we're not their parents, but we are their coaches and mentors. So I just wonder moving forward as somebody who is around a lot of people who have questions who aren't sure what's going on and what to make of things. I'm just wondering as uh, as a coach, as a mentor, you're also a father, but you're also you're also around all these uh, young hockey players who uh, bring all kinds of uh, different issues, problems, strengths, weaknesses to your program. And, and again, you're not their parent, uh, but I'm sure you've, you've probably thought more about what else you can say to these, um, these young hockey players, uh, maybe very similar right. to what you said to them the day after the shooting. Right. Well, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, to be in hockey basically my whole life you know, after mm-hmm. playing and managing a team in Europe and then having three boys obviously playing. And, and um, you know, I decided uh, in 2012 to kind of make a shift back to hockey full-time. And, and, and one was uh, to be the director of the Oakland Junior Grizzlies program, which is in Troy. And we've got about 350 kids in that program. And, and then I took the position with uh, Total Package Hockey, the academy model, as you had mentioned uh, four years ago. To me, it was kind of my you know, calling, so to speak, that I feel now that I've had three boys that are in the, in the mud, going mm-hmm. through the mud, um, been blessed enough for them to have some successes is it's a chance for us to, or me to give something back to them. Um, you know, giving them the guidance and the, um, the foundation and strength to, to be patient to the process of hockey. If you're, you know, someone that's, um, you know, highly motivated and because there's a lot of pressures on these kids at young ages and, you know, especially with social media and and optically everything is out there and, you know, these committing to co- to colleges or juniors at such a young age and there's a lot of anxiety for kids and parents, the uncertainty because there's no crystal ball uh, knowing how this is going to work out when they're young at 12, 13, 14. So I take pride in that. You know, the day that this incident happened, it, I really took it hard. Um, I felt it was my obligation the next day, or actually that night uh, of the shooting, I addressed my particular team, the 16U team with the Grizzlies, to talk a little bit about, you know, um, it's okay to show the strength. Uh, if you're struggling with something, sure, I'm their hockey coach, but I'm also there to help them with other things that could be bothering them in life. And if there's ever feel a need to want to talk to somebody, uh, just to have another voice, and even though I'm not their parents, but let them know I'm I'm not just their coach and I can help them as best I can. If nothing else, um, don't feel embarrassed to to have those conversations if there's something you're really struggling with. And I think that's what's hard with these young kids now is mm-hmm. there's a lot of emotion that's uh, pent up emotion that's inner. And, um, you know, with uh, the stresses of life, um, sometimes they don't always want to share that with their parents. So I had a, a good conversation with them uh, about that. Um, I can tell uh, both in my delivery, it was hard for me and for them. It certainly shed perspective. And a lot of them knew kids that were at that Oxford High School and it really hit home to them. So it was it was pretty quiet, but it was a surreal conversation. It was one that I felt that was necessary and um, one that I felt the timing was right. And then the next day um, when I got to work at the academy, because I'm the director for Total Package Hockey, it's something that I addressed to the student body. Uh, a little bit. Um, you could hear the buzz 
or the talk um, when the kids entered that morning at eight o'clock and there was a lot of shock and disbelief and a lot of the kids knew that I, you know, was living in Oxford. So there was some casual conversation, but then I felt there was a bigger, uh, a bigger message that needed to be sent. Uh, our whole staff was a part of that. And of course, uh, once again, not pushing anything on any of, of any of these kids, but to let them know that the mentorship piece is, is a big piece of the academy model, not just a playing piece. So I felt like we had a good staff mm-hmm. that sent the right message and um, you know, we had some individual conversations with kids about some things to kind of soothe them um, because I can only imagine um, the world that was rattled for those kids at that age or even younger uh, and the fear, um, you know, that would come their way if they were to experience something like that. I feel for us, not that it could never, ever happen, but uh, the academy is only 50 kids. And as you had mentioned, between seventh and 11th grade. So we mm-hmm. have a much better handle on behavior and having dialogues and more in tune to the student athletes. So uh, I love the position. It's um, I feel like it's in my wheelhouse. It's, it's, um, it's something I certainly uh, am very proud of. And, um, you know, we feel like we've got a good relationship with these kids to make a bigger impact in life. Dwayne, thanks again for uh, talking to us today about the shooting incident in Oxford, your background, in Oxford, talking to us about your three hockey-playing sons, Cole, Josh, and Dalton, about the strength and the courage of Buck and Sherry, Mir, as well as their sons, Tate, Ty, and Trent, and some of the lessons learned and how the community can heal moving forward. Thanks again for your time today, Dwayne. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Our thanks again to Dwayne Norris, and now let's hear Ted's conversation with Wings coach Jeff Blaschel. Here they are talking on Tuesday after the Wings had just found out that they weren't going to New York to face the Islanders tonight. To a certain extent, though, Jeff, are you a little relieved that tomorrow's off the docket? I mean, it would have been, I think we've talked about it for the last two days, it would have been kind of fluid and kind of tricky. I mean, mean, obviously, guys wouldn't have had your best roster out there either. Yeah, you know, if you told me at the beginning of the week um, that 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 you know both New York games were canceled, I certainly would have understood it. And 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 I and I not that I don't understand it now, I understand it. You just you got to the point where you know again we were getting ready to practice, hop on a flight and go. We were just in game mode, so um, you know yeah. I was just I was disappointed from that aspect. But certainly, you know, the challenge that we all face right now is is you know the rosters aren't you know. There's good, you know, we have opportunity to call good players up, but people are missing lots of players and it's just not, you know, really each other's teams at times that you're playing against and they're playing with. So, um, listen, I, I don't know the answer. Nobody knows the answer to this. Uh, these are these are challenging times. And and ultimately, you know, I don't get paid to make the, those decisions. I get paid to make sure my team's ready and, 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 and uh, go out and try to win hockey games and, and get better as a group. And that's what we're going to do. It's just specifically the goaltenders. Are they kind of back to square one a little bit? I mean, they haven't seen anything, any shots or anything for a week and just tracking the puck and all that kind of stuff. Are they going to take, is it going to take them another little extra time to get back to where they need to be? You think? Um, It's difficult for everybody knocking rust off. Um, I thought today we, we passed the puck a thousand times better than yesterday. So like just a couple days of skating helped our skaters, um, you know, Thomas Grace is, has been skating every day here. So, so he's been, you know, he's going to be a, a step ahead that way. Um, you know, and how long it takes uh, Ned to get his game back. He said he felt good. I know he worked hard when he was at home. 
uh, he, you know, he had, he had the ability to, to do some, some stuff at home. He felt pretty good. So, um, uh, the, the timing of games is always difficult, you know, so, so they're going to have to feel it, uh, as they get back into games, you know, hopefully we can, uh, put them in enough game like drills that at least they get some, um, you know, I, I don't want to say experience, but kind of reacquainted with, uh, with the different, uh, types of shots that they'll so, Ted, the goalies are back, Thomas Grice and Alex Nedeljkovic, who we heard from earlier. And in your story today at DetroitNews.com, you said the Wings could have most of their roster cleared to play against the Capitals on Friday, except for Lucas Raymond and Nick Letty. Both will be near the end of their time on the protocol list. You also said that defensemen Jordan Osterle and forwards Adam Ernie, Sam Gagne, and Joel Valeno, as you said earlier in the podcast, will be eligible to practice in the next few days. What's the latest heading into this optional practice? And again, things can change in a heartbeat. Well, Mark, it's just a matter of getting back into shape, getting into game rhythm. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they all talked about it yesterday. They need to get a game here soon, just get into some sort of rhythm, some sort of continuity. Um, get their timing back it's been a long it'll be a long time it'll be almost two weeks between games i mm-hmm. mean and a week of not even being on the ice so that's pretty significant um at this i mean but then again everybody's in the same boat and i think we talked about it here a little while ago i mean it'll be interesting to see how quickly teams can get back into their structure mm-hmm uh, i think we talked about it here recently just the games last night not a lot of defense here, San Jose and Arizona decided to play a football game instead <laughs> of hockey. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. The teams that can get back to what they were doing before, uh, you know, hats off to them. They'll be able to bank some more points here probably, and good for them. Uh, let's wrap up now by hearing from Steve Eiserman talking about the Olympics a few days before the NHL and NHLPA decided not to participate in the Beijing games. I'm a big supporter of our guy. You know, I know a lot of people in our league aren't, aren't, I'm a big supporter of our players playing. Uh, I I went as a player. I served on the management team. Uh, I think it's overall, it's great for our league and it's great for our game under the circumstances. I certainly understand the league's uh, apprehension even more so than uh, under normal circumstance. And from a player perspective, I got to think there would be some concerns of uh, what happens. Obviously, the biggest issue is if, if we do get COVID over there, what's going to happen. Uh, so um, personally, I'm fine with whatever everyone decides to do. I'm not involved. But in general, I'm, uh, uh, I think the NHL players playing in the Olympics is a great so, Ted, there's Steve Eisenman, a proponent of going to the Olympics, but he understood ahead of the decision if they didn't go because of all the COVID-related issues. You talked to Dylan Larkin uh, about not being able to go, perhaps, to the Games. He was certainly would have been a, a leading candidate with 29 points and 27 games. I just wonder, Ted, what your thoughts are about uh, Larkin and others not being able to go to the Olympics and fans not being able to see the uh, best on best. Mark, it's unfortunate, but I think we talked about it before. It's, it's, it, was, it just didn't seem like it was going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. right from the get-go, there's so many issues, all the rules and regulations and quarantines possibly in China if you contracted it. and just. But basically, just the damage the regular season schedule already has taken. I mean, it's a brutal hit with so many games now they have to make up. And who knows? I mean, it's it sounds like they've put a – cap on it yet is we made it who knows i think we've seen the worst of it but mm-hmm. 
think there's still some issues out there. You're seeing some guys today, this morning, that are, have come down with it. So, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. You want to see the best against the best, but it just didn't seem like it was going to, it was destined to happen this season. Ted, thanks again for doing this today, episode 64. And for more Red Wings coverage, you can check out Ted's stories at DetroitNews.com. You can also find us on our Octopulse Facebook page, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Instagram stories, and Snapchat. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 